Well, we've been in a series that we have entitled uh, A Life in Focus. And it's a different kind of series because we've been dealing with some uh, certain themes and topics uh, that we needed to address as a church. The elders uh, in talking and some of our uh, counseling that, that we've been doing have, have seen a, a rise in, in some difficult marriages and some difficult parenting situations. And our normal practice is to take a book or a, a chapter of the Bible and deal verse by verse through it. Well, we're still doing that. Each week we're looking at a particular passage of Scripture, but we're looking through the lens of what God's Word says to a particular uh, situation or relationship uh, that we have. Now, last week, we looked at the first part of the subject of marriage, and we talked about the importance of biblical marital roles, what the husband is to do if he wants to honor God in the marriage, what the wife must do if she wants to honor God in her marriage as well. Now, before I go too far, I want to address a couple things. Every once in a while, you preach a message and people will respond. And uh, the responses, I will say, of all the responses I get from my messages, all of them have been fair. Not all of them have had their names on it, which is okay, as long as you don't say bad things about how I look and stuff like that. It's all right that you remain anonymous. Some were signed. But I got uh, a few uh, responses back with some wonderful questions. And I want to give you the opportunity, if you ever hear something that maybe just doesn't seem right, or maybe you thought, man, where did Tim come up with that? I give you every opportunity to come up to me afterwards, not while I'm preaching, but afterwards, and ask me uh, to uh, give more detail or explain where I was going with that. And the reason why I bring this up is because we talked last week about the roles of marriage. And I gave some guiding principles on what a marriage is to look like. And I talked about very broad-based principles that are of great importance for us as husbands and wives to live in if we want to have a God-honoring marriage. But the responses that I got back from uh, last week's message were the responses, what about me, Tim? I'm living with a real bad marriage. I'm struggling with a destructive spouse. I'm dealing with abuse in my family. What about me? Is it enough for me just to be a good Christian and to just allow this destructive behavior to take place? I thought about that, and I want to take a couple moments, and I don't want to take a lot of time on it, but I want to take a couple moments and give you a word. If you find yourself in a difficult marriage, where you find yourself as one of the spouses, the only one fighting to try to keep the marriage alive, here are some biblical principles I want you to follow. Write them down somewhere on your outline so you have them. Number one, if you're alone in fighting for your marriage, number one, be totally submitted to God. No matter what your spouse is doing, this is extra credit, not even to the message yet, no matter what your spouse is doing, no matter how they act towards you, the behavior that they're involved in, you have a responsibility to God to submit to Him. No matter what circumstances you face, you alone will be called to the depth of what you have done for God need to live up to that. Submit to God. The second thing we need to see is, is we need to understand the role of suffering for Christians. Jesus didn't tell us once we are saved that everything's going to be all fine and dandy. He doesn't say in the scriptures, once you become a Christian, you'll never have to worry about this issue of divorce because you're immune to it. You took the pill and you no longer have to worry about the disease of a, of a struggling marriage or a marriage that's ready to divorce. So what do we need to understand? That if you're suffering in a difficult relationship, 
understand this. Suffering is a part of the calling of a Christian. Now, we don't all suffer at the same level, nor do we all suffer in the same arena. But the Scriptures, especially 1 Peter, talks about the importance of how to live in spite of great suffering. We don't want to diminish it. No one's here to tell you that your pain isn't real. But suffer well unto the Lord. Number three, focus in on God's will for your marriage. Focus in on God's will for your marriage. The idea here is, what is God's vision for your marriage? What does the Bible say what a healthy marriage should look like? And live up to that. Now, I understand it takes two to tango. I understand that it takes two to make a healthy marriage. But do your best. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with your husband. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with your wife. Love them as Christ loved the church. But I don't love them. I hate them. Well, love your enemies. Pray for them. All these biblical principles that we read and talk about in our children's Sunday school classes apply to the very nature of difficult marriages. Number four, have positive support around you. If you find yourself today in a difficult marriage, then make sure that you are assembling together with other Christians. Not with people who say, get rid of that deadbeat. You'll be better off without them. No, find healthy support. Find biblical support that you can find in a local church. Now be careful you don't spread your, your, uh, your issues and struggles throughout the whole entire church. But find a group of individuals that you can have confidence with to get the right support and the care that you need. The final thing is, is do all you can to buy time for your spouse to change. Do all you can to buy time for your spouse to change. A hated man in Acts chapter 8 was the man by the name of Saul. He hated Jesus and everything Jesus stood for. But in a Damascus minute, everything changed, to quote Don Henley in the Eagles. It all changed. And if Saul can change to go from hater of Jesus Christ to the greatest apostle and missionary of Jesus Christ, then your deadbeat husband or your unforgiving wife can change in a moment's flash as well. So what do you do? Be patient. Endure like a good soldier and try to last as long as you possibly can so that your husband or wife may come to either the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ or come to a point where they will be the husband or wife that God has called them to be towards you as well. A short sermon. I hope that helps in some ways. I never want to diminish the hurt and pain that is going on in people's lives, but I want you to understand that we have a responsibility in our marriages, whether they are good or bad. I would ask that the rest of us be praying for these individuals. This isn't just a one or two. There is, there's a, I don't want to say a significant amount, but there are some real marriages in our church that are struggling, that are having great deals of struggle. Pray for them. We're not immune to this in the evangelical church, and we must be lifting each other up in prayer that God will give us the right countenance and the right uh, things in our lives to allow us to be victorious. So let's look at the second aspect this morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to look at God's design for marriage. Now this marriage errs on the practical. We're going to find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 7, but I'm going to be coming at it from many different angles and directions. And what I want to do is get very practical this morning to a wide spectrum of individuals. 
Now, I want to also articulate a couple of things because it'll be a little different this morning as I move through this message, something that we've not done before. And this is what I want to articulate. While it is the desire of my pulpit ministry and Village Bible Church's pulpit ministry that we would never detract from God's Word by dealing with taboo subjects and topics, I am commanded as an elder of the church to teach the whole counsel of God's Word. Even the difficult parts, even the ones where I would blush in preaching them to a room of people. And today is no different. I stand today to articulate a message that is for mature audiences. And I know that some of what I'm going to articulate, especially in the latter part of my message, will create some awkwardness for different age groups. So to alleviate that, what we are going to do is the people 18 and younger are going to listen to about 85% of my message. Then what I'm going to ask is I'm going to close in a word of prayer and I'm going to ask everybody, 18 and younger, to head out with Mario and his staff uh, to uh, another room. They've got a couple activities and things they're going to do with you. And the last 15 minutes, I just want to talk to moms and dads, husbands and wives and adults. So parents, I know that's a bit of a surprise to you. I pray that you would uh, just follow that lead when I ask them to leave to do that so that we can articulate to an age-appropriate audience what I have to share today. Now, I also want to articulate, this isn't because we shelter our children. This, these are important subjects that we need to deal with. In fact, our teenagers just dealt with a, I believe it was a seven or eight week series on the issue of dating and purity and sexuality. And those are important things. But we want to be age appropriate with them in that way. So when this isn't as a result of sheltering our children, not telling them the important things, important truths of holiness in all facets of life. So with that, let us stand as we look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to be looking through verses 1. Uh, through seven. So let's uh, look to God's word this morning. Now, the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Lord, we deal with a difficult topic today, not because it is taboo in your eyes, but because we as a culture have allowed this thing to become a noose around marriages in our culture. Lord, this is an issue that we have to deal with. It's an issue that we have to understand what your word says about it so that we may live upright and holy lives in our marriage. I pray for those who uh, are not married. Lord, there's a word for them this morning. I pray that they will remain pure and will flee from the sexual immorality that you call us away from. And Lord, I pray that there will be great unity in our marriages in in the issues that will be brought up this morning. Not so that we can point and say how great we are, but how great you are. That you are the binder of the broken. 
You are the one who comes and brings abundance. So Lord, open your words to us today. Allow it to penetrate our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. I'm going to trip over this thing, so I'm moving it. First Corinthians chapter 1 gives us an opening argument, if you will, or not opening argument, but an opening discussion where the church at Corinth seems to have written the Apostle Paul and it was kind of ask the Apostle your question. And it starts out in verse 7 saying, Now the matters that you wrote about. And he talks on the subject of marriage and love and, and the involvement between a husband and a wife. It seems that in first century Corinth, they were struggling with some of the same things we struggle with in our marriages. What are we to do as husbands and wife? What is okay and not okay? What is the role of the husband and the wife? It seems that in our culture today, we have lost sight of what a biblical marriage is to look like. We talked last week about how marriage is being redefined and how marriage, there is no real true meaning of marriage anymore in our culture because we have failed to show future generations what marriage ought to look like. And so every generation that goes by, we become more and more lax when it comes to the issues of marriage. This can be illustrated, our culture and its ignorance towards marriage. In a story that I found, it's about a farmer that walked into a lawyer's office wanting to divorce his wife. The lawyer asked, well, do you have any grounds? The farmer replied, yeah, I've got about 140 acres. The lawyer said, no, you don't understand. Do you have a case? He says, no, I don't drive a case. I drive a John Deere. No, no, still, you're not understanding me. Do you have a grudge? Yeah, I've got a grudge. That's where I park my John Deere. No, sir, do you have a suit? Yeah, I've got one, but I only wear it on Sundays. Now, the lawyer was frustrated, and he said, Sir, does your wife beat you up or anything like that? No, sir, we both get up about 4.30 in the morning. (laughs) That man was ignorant to the issue that he was facing. And I will tell you that while that story is funny, it has a great uh, level of importance to us, of us to learn some things. And that is we cannot be ignorant when it comes to the issues of marriage. So Paul addresses them. He says, you've written me, now I'm going to answer your questions. We don't know exactly what the question was. The text does not tell us. But we do understand what Paul's answer is. And in this passage, he gives a blueprint or a design for how husbands and wives are to act with one another. And we see three things this morning. Number one, uh, God's design for marriage involves elevating marriage to be a special relationship. We are to elevate our marriages to a place where it is a special relationship. Now, throughout the scriptures, we see the importance that marriage has in the life of humanity. From the beginning in the Garden of Eden all the way through the pastoral epistles and uh, and the letters to the different churches in the New Testament, it is made clear by the biblical authors that marriage is of great importance. It's not a friendship. It's not a casual relationship. It's not a business partnership. Marriage supersedes all those things because it is the most special relationship that is designed for two people to have. Two friends can't have the relationship that a husband and wife can. Two business partners can't. Two teammates on an athletic team can't have this. 
Because this is the melding of two relations, or two people, and two souls, and, and, and two fleshes coming to be one. And that was God's design. So what we need to understand before we move on is what Paul is going to articulate. And the reason why this is of such great concern is because marriage is important. For some of us in our marriages today, we have grown casual to our approach to marriage. What we've said is, is, yeah, I'm married, but it's not that important. Yes, I wear a ring. Yes, she's my missus or he's my mister, but we don't really work at it. Marriage has to be a priority. In fact, it is the second priority of all human beings, second only to God. Meaning, when you get married... Your second most important priority is to that of your spouse, not to your kids, not to your church, not to your work or to your hobbies or pursuits. It is your marriage, number two only to your walk with Jesus Christ. For some, we've lost our sight of priorities when it comes to that. Now, the term priority isn't in our text, nor is it explicit in there, but what we see is the importance of it. Notice what uh, the text tells us in verse 5. It says, Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Why? He says, Then you can come together so that Satan will not tempt you. There are two reasons in this text that I see that shows that marriage is important. And the first one is the mention of the devil or Satan. Paul singularly says... The devil's out there. Now, why would he say that? Because I will tell you, from what I see in Scripture, one of the key areas, the key battlegrounds for a Christian is in their marriage. The devil wants to destroy that. And so what we see is Paul shares a a, a word about an attack that destroys. What he articulates is he says there's an attack that can come from an enemy that can destroy you. Write that in your outlines. There's an attack that can destroy He says, hey, you need to be taking care of one another and each other's needs. And then you need to, at times, if it's needed, uh, take some time to pray. Take some time to fast and, uh, and spend some time in prayer. Focusing in on a particular issue, that's what fasting is all about. Uh, it's saying that there are other things that are, uh, spiritual things are more important than some of the daily activities that we're a part of. And he says, but be careful that Satan doesn't tempt you. The devil wants to destroy your marriage. He will use everything in his power. That's why culture, he's the, key, he's the prince of the kingdom of the power of the air. And the culture tells us everything uh, that is bad about marriages. Even in sitcoms and movies that show a husband and a wife show it to be completely dysfunctional. I, I, I enjoy watching the show Everybody Loves Raymond, but after about two times of watching it, it starts to drive me nuts because Raymond is this passive, uninvolved father who cares more about the Knicks game on the television and his golf game than he does about his wife and his children. Now, we can enjoy that and say, ha-ha, they say funny things, but we need to understand culture is trying to give us this onslaught of dysfunctional marriages. Why? Because they want to say, you know what, it's, it's not that important. And we fall prey to it. Ever since the garden, 
When Adam and Eve were together in the garden, if you remember in Genesis chapter 3, they're together. Remember uh, in Genesis chapter 2, uh, Adam says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's Hebrew for, woohoo, look at her, she's hot. Okay? You can check the translation on that. Um, and yet a chapter later, after they've bitten into the forbidden fruit... He ain't talking about how beautiful she is and how great it is to have her around in the garden. What does he say in Genesis chapter 3? The woman you gave me made me do it. He blames her. Why would he want to do that? You know, we look at the fall and we say, oh, the fall was all about God and man being severed from one another because of man's sinfulness. I'll go one step farther that uh, the devil knew that um, two are better than one and a cord of three cannot be broken, the text says in the Old Testament. I believe it's in the book of Proverbs. And so what he said is, hey, let's get God out of the picture. And once we get God out of the picture, let's get them hating one another. And so we have to understand that the devil wants to destroy. Next, we see that there's an awareness that must be developed. If that's the case, there are some things we need to do. And it involves, first of all, our attitudes. What are your attitudes about your spouse? Are they God-honoring? Are they fair? What bitterness are you harboring from years ago that you cannot let go from your spouse? I will tell you, if you keep holding on to those things, you say they will never come out. Out of the overflow of the uh, heart, the mouth speaks. You start putting garbage in, you start thinking things and believing things in your heart, you wait. The right time will come when you're most angry at your spouse and you will say the most vile, the most sinful things you've ever articulated in your life. You say, where did that come from? Out of the overflow of the heart, your garbage will come out. I learned it in first grade. Garbage in, garbage out. It's as simple as that. The second thing we need to look at is our actions. How are we responding to our spouse? What causes irreconcilable differences and divorce? Unresolved anger. It's as easy as that. What allows for adultery? A wrongful attitude about the emotional and sexual connections with others instead of your spouse. What causes most issues of abuse? A wrong view of a husband or a wife in what they are called to do. You want to understand something? You get the wrong attitudes. The wrong attitudes will produce the wrong actions. Some of you today are harboring some evil thoughts about your spouse, some hated thoughts about your spouse. You've never articulated me saying, well, we'll never get a divorce. That's just for me to know. Those are some of my pet peeves. Those are the things that kind of drain me when it comes to my wife or my husband. Understand this. The devil's sitting there saying, hey, we've got an opening. And so what happens? We go to bed on our anger. Remember what the book of Ephesians says? Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Why? So you will not give the devil a what? A foothold. He's sitting there and he's watching. He says, let him go to bed angry. Cheek to cheek, if you will. Some of you understand what I mean by that. And just let it stew for a while. Let it sit there for a while and I'll wait for the right time. She's not going to show affection to him. I'll find someone who will. It's as easy as that, my friends. There's an awareness that must be developed because there's an attack that destroys. That's the first thing we need to understand. Elevate this thing to a special relationship. It's the most important relationship on earth that you can have with another human. The second thing is, is that we must understand that God's design for marriage involves, uh, let's see here, involves experiencing marriage as a spiritual relationship. 
as a spiritual relationship. Now notice what Paul's word is to the church at Corinth. Let's look again to our text. And he says, I want to talk with you about marriage. I want to talk to you about the issue of a husband and wife. And he goes on and he articulates that a husband is to take care of the wife. The wife is to take care of the husband. And there's going to be a time where they're going to uh, go to God and seek the Lord to devote themselves to prayer. Now again, I think it's of great importance that we recognize something here. What Paul is saying is he's not saying, husbands, you as the leaders in your home, your job is to be the one who devotes themselves to prayer. Nor does he say, women, because you're the the more uh, kind and the more gentle of the sexes, you're going to be the one who's going to devote themselves to prayer. He says you need to both do it. He talks about a time of consent. The idea there is a time of agreement, where the husband and wife say, hey, let's devote ourselves to some spiritual aspects in our lives. And so it involves some things. We have to look at the marriage relationship as a spiritual one. If I have any issue, and and I don't want to make a political statement here, but if I have any issue with uh, the uh, issue of uh, homosexual marriage, the issue is, is that not so much, I don't like the redefining of marriage, I hate that, but the reason why is they're taking God out of the mix. They're saying this isn't God's. Every time I watch on the news, anybody who presents it, they say, hey, it's not the job of the clergy. It's not the job of the church to marry people. What, you telling me God's involved in every marriage? And then they talk about all the abusive marriages and all the issues there. And I would agree that there are a lot of marriages in our world that don't honor God. But God was there when the first marriage took place, and he is present at every one, whether they like it or not. God is the designer of this thing. And so if you think as a believer that your relationship with Jesus Christ is separate from that of your spouses, we involve ourselves in that. How do we begin to make our marriages the spiritual relationship that it needs to be? Number one, commit to spiritual matters. Commit yourself to spiritual matters. Does God's word mean something to you and your spouse? Or is one of you hot for Jesus Christ and the other one cold on Christ? Is your involvement in church and your ministry and the raising your children in the way of the Lord, is it of great importance to you? Or is it something you do because that's what your parents did or that's what Tim tells you on a Sunday morning? Commit yourself together. Some of you have never spent any time together as husband and wife. You talked about what happens when you die, where the kids go. You've talked about what happens with your money. You've worked all the things out for any kind of emergency situations. You've talked about where the kids are going to go to school. You've even talked about what vacation you're going to go on this summer. But you've never sat down and talked about how do we worship and serve God together. I'll tell you, some of the most intimate and most enjoyable conversations that I have with my wife are those of a spiritual matter. Now, I know more about the Bible than she does. I study it a lot more than she does. But she's no lightweight. She loves the Lord with all her heart, mind, and strength. She pursues her relationship with Jesus Christ because she loves Him. And so we talk about that. Our our dreams of what God may do in our lives when it comes to our own relationship to Him. Our aspect of calling. What is God calling us to? How is God calling us to raise our children? 
And the things that we see in our children, some of the tendencies that we see even now as they're young children, watching them grow up, that we can begin to say, hey, the devil could really make a heyday out of that with our sons. And we talk about it. How can we grow our children to be strong men of God? When was the last time you come as it involves communicating things? He says, put to death all those things that desires greed. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and put on all. Is that a word for marriage? One another, that can happen in a marriage relationship. With all wisdom, as you sing song, that whatever you do, whether in word or deed, you're doing it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Man, if we would just start living that way and start talking, we would say, God, it's all... It is of a sweet fragrance to God. Anger and malice have not allowed their spouses in. Now, does that mean, you know, have... uh, That may work for some. It may not work for others. What I'm saying, one person's faith to encourage... It's important for us to invite Christ back. And important, and the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, that the role of the husband is to purify and to nurture the wife so that he can present his wife as Christ presents the church pure and blameless before God in heaven. That's the role of us. I pray that I will, I will present Amanda as the radiant Christian that she is and that I won't detract from that but I will build into that. And I hope it's Amanda's. I've seen it, so I believe it to be true, that she would say, I I want to see Tim radiant and beautiful before his Savior. That's our role in the spiritual relationship. Well, there's one final area that we need to look at, and that involves experiencing marriage as as a satisfying relationship. Now, the whole core of this text verses 1 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 7, is on the issue of marriage. And Paul tells us in our text that the marriage relationship needs to be like Snickers. It needs to satisfy. Now, some, if I was to ask, and you were to be honest, many of you would say that your marriage is far from satisfying in many different arenas for many different reasons. I'm counseling, uh, I just recently was finished counseling a couple uh, that was a peer of ours, of my age. And the reason why their marriage wasn't a satisfying marriage was because of the children. Well, Lord knows I could amen that sometimes. But you know what? There should be nothing, whether it's children or the lack of a job or, or uh, disharmony between the spouses, that should keep us from having our marriage be a satisfying one. Paul talks about this in the text. He says, now the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. And he goes on and he says, hey, there needs to be this interplay between the husband and the wife meeting one another's needs. Not just the needs in the bedroom, but needs that go on throughout their lives. But in articulating this, there are two words that are shared. The first word I want to deal with is a word to the waiting. A word to the waiting. Before we deal with the marriage issue, I want to talk with those who are waiting, those who are single, those of our teenagers that are in our midst this morning. What Paul is addressing isn't just the marriages in our presence, 
But I believe he's already arti- also articulating something else. Now, this is where uh, doing some study and reading some different translations helps us to understand what Paul is talking about. In verse 1 of chapter 7, Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. That's the NIV translation. Does anyone here, I, I need someone to help me out, have an NAS? Uh, Laura, can you read nice and loud what the NAS says? It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Sounds like a different translation, right? That's, that's pretty different. One says it's good for a man not to marry. Well, that seems kind of odd. Paul, why would you not marry? What's, what's your beef about marriage? But what it seems is, and, and while there's great uh, um, discussion between commentators on what translation is best, the issue is, is the Greek word that is there, uh, which is, uh, I had it here, and I, I can't find it in my notes, but uh, it is the, oh, here we go, haptumai, haptumai, which means in the Greek to fasten or to adhere to. It means to cling to. But it also means to touch. And in several references, when it's used in the Greek, it is a euphemism for sexual contact. contact. And so what is being articulated here is one of two things. Either what he's saying is, is hey, you don't need to be married um, to be adhered to a woman or to a spouse or a husband um, as much as maybe what I think it means is be careful what you're doing with the opposite sex. Be careful. And that's my word for the waiting. It's not good for a man to touch a woman. Now you say, Tim, well, how are you just kind of making this up? Is this, you know, where do you get this? I get this from the the, the, uh, principle of context. Look at what he says in uh, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body is, uh, let's see here, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them to a prostitute? He says, never. Now, let me, let me, let me finish verse 16 and then stop for a moment. Do you not know that he who un- unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Let's stop there. You say, well, I've never visited a prostitute, young person or single individual or person that's now married. I've never visited a prostitute. I can say with a clear conscience, I've never done that. That's not the issue there. The idea here, commentators say, is it's not that you've paid for sexual activity. What it is, is that you've gone to someone else for the unique situation of deriving sexual pleasure from another individual. And that's what you're pursuing. And let me tell you something uh, that is difficult for us to hear. It is difficult for even those who are married in our midst, who have struggled in uh, the times before they were married. None of us are sexually pure in this room before God. But I will tell you this. You start messing around in your dating days and you find yourself involving yourself in sexual activity, you are uniting yourself just as if you went to a prostitute. And what does the Bible say? It says, for this reason, the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. You start messing around in the sexual arena, young people and singles in our day, here you're finding yourself on quicksand. 
Because what takes place is you begin to unite yourself in a way that God says is no good. It's an important word for us. Now, I understand. Please let me articulate that again. I understand. It wasn't that long ago when I was a teenager. It wasn't that long ago that I remember having to wait to be married. I recognize the hurts and the pains it takes to do all that you can not to fall into sexual morality. And so I want to help us understand this. There are four things I want our young people and singles to know about your waiting. Number one is the issue of desires. The issue of desires. Write this down if you're in that group of individuals. And understand this. God's word makes it clear. Sexual desires are from the Lord. He created our bodies. He created us male and female. He created us to be sexual beings. Your desires, your feelings, the drive that you have towards the opposite sex is not an evil thing. It is not a bad thing. It is a God-given thing for you and for your enjoyment. But it is at the right time. Yesterday I was mowing, the, or I was uh, out at my in-laws up in Galena, Illinois. This time I didn't get sick like I did last time. And we were out, uh, my uh, father-in-law just bought a new John Deere. And uh, we were out driving the John Deere around. I took the boys, had one on each side of my lap, and we're driving around. And, and Noah says, Daddy, I want to drive it. I want you off it, and I want to drive it. <laughs> so there's nobody on the road. And I said, all right, I'll let you drive it. Now something that I know Noah will be able to do because Lord knows I ain't mowing the grass for the rest of my life. That's why you have children and sons especially. There's going to be a time where Noah is going to mow the grass. Now is not the right time. He was all over the place. I'm chasing after him like a madman. He's cackling like this crazy man. Woohoo! And he's driving all over the place. Neighbors are moving their children into the houses. And what that was, was something that is good, something that he should desire. Every young boy wants to drive a tractor, but he's not ready for it. And he wasn't able to control it. Now, something that for an adult is far easy to control, it's very easy to control, is very difficult for someone who's not ready for it. He will be one day. I want him to strive to be able to do that one day. I want him to operate machinery. It's important. He needs to drive a car and be able to do those things. But he's not ready yet. You may say, Tim, that's the absolute worst illustration about me waiting for sex. (laughs) Just think of a John Deere when you think about sex, and that will help. (laughs) That wasn't in my notes, but it was pretty funny. (laughs) But those desires are okay. But there's a couple other things with those desires. It comes with a decision. The decision is, will I honor God with my body? You have these desires. God isn't diminishing those desires, and I'm not either. They're powerful desires. But once those desires come into existence in your teenage years, now you have a decision to make. Will I live my teenage years and my single years pursuing sex and all that it affords, or will I honor God with my body? There's a decision that needs to be made. Am I going to honor God with what I do with the opposite sex? Am I going to honor God when I'm alone with a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Will I honor God when we're engaged and nobody else is around? Now, I don't say this as one who's completely pure. I say this as one who struggled during these years. 
But I will tell you what, I didn't hear a lot of these messages as a young person. And I'm glad my parents spoke openly and honestly about it. And your parents should as well. You should make it easy for dialogue like that to take place. A decision has to be made. Then there needs to be a direction. And the direction is in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. It means run for your life. Run for your life. He says, all other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. What it means is there are some huge wounds that come when you find yourself giving way to the devil in sexual immorality. I was doing some studying statistics. Center for Disease Control says that now uh, at this point in our high schools today, one in three teenagers is carrying a sexually transmitted disease. One out of three. Most of them don't even know they're carrying it, and yet they will carry it for the rest of their lives. There's been a a huge increase in cervical cancer as a result of uh, one of these asymptomatic uh, viruses that you can get. You've heard about it. You've heard about now they're pushing for a um, vaccination to be done because it's becoming an epidemic. And it's because of the issue of sexual immorality of young people. Flee for your life. How do you do it? How do you flee sexual immorality? I want to give you 10, th- uh, let's see here, one, two, three, two, finally, nine, uh, let's see here, nine, 10 things. I had to see which, how far we went here. 10 things that I want you to write down as a person who is waiting for marriage. Number one, do not seek out sexual gratification. Whether by yourself or with someone else, don't be pursuing that. That is not your number one goal. Yes, you are a sexual being, but that is not all that you are. Notice what it says. You are the temple of God. You're the temple of God. That's who you are. That is, live out of that purpose. Not one small section of who you are. Number two, do not seek out sexual satisfaction through touching or being touched by another person, even if you stop short of intercourse. Don't, don't play the game. How far can I go without going far enough? Number three, Avoid unnecessary sexual stimulation, whether it's TV, magazines, the internet, even if it's not quote-unquote the bad stuff, stay away from it. Run for your life from those things. Number four, when stimulation becomes apparent, perform a conscious act to transfer that temptation to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Don't diminish it as it's a bad desire, it's something that is of the devil. No, sexual desires are okay, but in their proper context. Fire is good in a fireplace, not in the middle of your living room. Why? Because the fireplace is able to contain what the fire is going to do. The Bible makes it clear. Can a man scoop coals, hot coals into his lap and not be burned? Of course he can't. And you won't either in the sexual realm. Number five, pray that God will give you in in ever-increasing strength, a longing to know and love Him above all else. What it means there, long sentence that says, love God first and foremost. Have a love and desire for Him, not a pursuit for uh, things that will take place in the marriage bed. Number six, become saturated in God's Word. Stop reading the filth. Stop going to the things that just keep driving you to think about it. To stop thinking and contemplating those issues and begin to saturate yourself in God's Word. Uh, number seven, keep yourself busy. 
And when it comes time to leisure, choose things that are pure, lovely, gracious, excellent, and worthy of praise. Remember David and Bathsheba? David should have never been on the roof of, the, of uh, his, uh, um, where, where did King stay? Palace, thank you. I was going to say temple and that wasn't sure. You would mess up too if you were talking about this stuff in front of you guys. And he's supposed to be at war, but he's not. And he finds himself strolling one night late by himself, having a leisurely walk looking over his kingdom, and his gaze falls upon Bathsheba. You want to fall to sexual sin just like David did? Give yourself too much leisure time in front of the computer or in the television. Or find yourself hanging out with the wrong types of people, and you'll find yourself falling to sexual temptation. Uh, Number, uh, let's see here, where am I at? Number nine, eight. Don't spend too much time alone. Be with Christian people often. I was so excited a couple weeks ago. uh, I took our family out to go bowling up in DeKalb and I happened to arrive uh, to the bowling alley in DeKalb to have a dozen of our young people bowling together. Guys and girls in one big group with Chet Curlew there holding down the fort. And you know what I was excited about? They were having a ball. And yet they were doing it together. They were having fun. And they were doing something that honors God. There was no one in their car with their boyfriend or girlfriend by themselves talking all sweet nothings into one another's ears, getting into garbage. They were together having a good time honoring God in their friendships. Where am I at? Number nine. Strive to think of all people, especially people of the opposite sex in relation to eternity. You will see them in heaven. Those words, those cunning words, gentlemen, that we had to to try to get to the next base with with our date. We'll see those people. We'll see them one of two ways. Number one, we'll see them lined up as they wait for the judgment of God to be destined to hell. And I want you to think about something which breaks my heart. In my teenage years, I worried more about a girl liking me than I did her own spiritual well-being. And that's a damning thought for me. Because there were some girls that I liked that were not believers and I should have been investing more time telling them about the gospel of Christ and I dare not want to look in their faces on the judgment day and them say you cared more about yourself and your own ego than you did about my soul. Think about your brothers and sisters in Christ as well. The girl you like in the youth group, she's your sister in Christ. She's someone else's husband. How many of you uh, actually uh, married the person you first dated? Let me see a show of hands. How many of you actually... That's good. That's, don't, be, don't be ashamed of that. How many of you... Not that many hands, right? How many of you actually married the person you were dating in high school? Let's see a show of hands. A couple more. Some high school sweethearts there. That's good. That gives you an idea that your marriage probably isn't to the one you're dating right now if you're a teenager. There's a chance, but not a very good one, according to our little statistics done by the Badal Research Institute. <laughs> Finally, seek, the fir- seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and He will add young people, singles, He will add to you everything you need, including the ability and the wherewithal to flee from sexual immorality. While the road is hard, it's filled with trials and heartbreaking experiences. While it comes full of temptation, the the thing that we must remember 
is our destiny. Don't you know, verse 19, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You know, I... I don't know, sometimes I'm dense. I I didn't even think that that verse, we use that verse all the time, that it actually involves itself in the context of sexual purity. You were bought with a price. That means Jesus bought me. I'm not my own, but I'm Jesus's. Well, in the proper context, Paul is saying, you're not your own. Your, Your sexual drive is not yours. It's God's. It's not yours. So let me pray for them and let them leave uh so we can get to one more group of people. Let me pray for our young people. Father God, it is not easy to be a teenager. It is not easy to be a single in this sex-crazed world. So Father, I pray for purity. Oh Lord, it's not easy. It is difficult. Father, it is far more difficult than it was for me 15 years ago because of the uh, birth of the internet and, and uh, all that that affords, to what TV and, and cable and all that comes out, to the magazines and the stories that we read. Lord, it is, it is impossible in our own strength to find ourselves to be pure from sexual immorality except through the strength of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that we would be a church that would encourage our teens that would love our teens. Father, that we would be a people that would pray for our teenagers and singles, that they would flee from such activity. Not because we don't want them to have fun. It's not because you don't want them to have fun, because it's for your protection. Lord, we thank you for that. Father, I pray for parents right now that are dealing with some difficult subject matter in their own home. The issues of dating and the issues of of, uh, involvement with uh, the opposite sex with their children. Father, let them speak boldly. Let them not speak with a legalistic tone, but one that is full of grace and love. But Lord, that they would clearly articulate the consequences that come with unrighteous living as a young person. Oh, Father, we need your strength in this. We need your help and your power because greater is he that is in our young people than anything else in the world, including the devil. Lord, let them live in light of that. Let them pursue that. Father, create in us, a, in this church, a, such a strong student ministry program that will allow them to interact with one another, that they will know that sex is not the end game. Marriage is not all that it is, but that it would be something more, as we'll talk about in uh, our text next week, of the role of singleness in the Christian So, Lord, take our young people from this place with great encouragement in their heart and with great fervor, not to pursue passions, but to pursue you, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Let me close with this point, and then we will get back to enjoying Huntley Brown's uh, playing. But this is important for us to know. Paul also addresses those who are wedded. He addresses the marital focus as well. It's not just for young people or singles, but there's more. He addresses couples and he says the opposite to them of what he says to the single or to those who are waiting. To those he says waiting, he says, no, no, stop, stop, not yet. To the marital couple, when it comes to sexuality, he says, yes, yes, more is better. It is good. So there's a flip. Don't flee from sexual immorality um, as uh, husband and wife. Because it is not immoral. 
It is good. Notice what he says in the text. I want to just close with a couple thoughts here for us to walk away from. In verse 2 and 3, he says, But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband is to fulfill the marital duty to the wife and likewise the wife to the husband. Your, your bodies in the marital relationship don't belong to uh, only one, but to each other. Don't deprive each other of this. There's a couple things I want to share with you. There are a couple areas that we see. Number one, we are not to deprive one another in the service towards one another. Not in the sexual service, but just the service. As a spouse, you are called to serve your spouse. You're called to do it. But some of us, we don't really have a clue of what the needs our spouse has. So I'm going to give you to them. Here we go. Number one, men write this down. A woman's needs are as follows. Now you say, Tim, I, there's some differences with my wife. We're like cars, okay? There's different models. There's different interiors. There's different upgrades. But in the end, there's an a internal combustion engine with a tailpipe and some metal and a couple chairs in it. We're all pretty much the same. So here are some words of wisdom to men. Number one, a woman's need. Number one is security. Does my husband care for me above all earthly things? Number two, does he, this is under the word of security, does he love and admire me? Number three, is he faithful to me? And number four, does he provide for me? If you can't answer those questions, husband, for your wife, then something's wrong. You are not taking care of your wife's needs. Number two, the second need of a woman is non, write N-O-N, write that, men say non. Let's do it again. Sexual touch. They love non-sexual touching. This means, can you show affirmation to me? That doesn't mean we have to head to the bed, to the bedroom. Can you do that? Can you hold my hand? Can you whisper sweet nothings into my ear? If you know what that means, tell me. I'm still trying to figure that one out. Can you show me affection? Can you look at me across a room filled with people and say, hey, I love you? Number three, open and deep dialogue. What this means, man, I'll speak in your language, it means talking about feelings feelings. Write that down. No, many of you don't know how to spell that. F-E-E-L-I-N-G-S. Feelings. Feelings. How are you feeling, dear? How is your day with the children, dear? Don't, don't, don't hold back on me. Give me details. Okay. That's their need. Is that right, women? Yes. How was your day at work, dear? Not it was fine. Give details. Talk to them about what happened. Number four, leadership. Are you leading me, this is the wife asking, in a God-honoring way? Now, there may be other ones. And by the way, sex is number 13 after gardening, okay? (laughs) Are you meeting your spouse's needs? If you're not, let's go back to point number one. You have opened the season for the devil to wreak havoc in your wife's life. All it takes is you not to care about your wife and to not worry about what's going on in, in, in her life and not care about the details of it and her to share her feelings and her intimacies with you and, and her to find someone else. Where do women usually find that satisfaction? In the children. 
And the problem is, is husbands and wives grow cold to one another during the child raising years because the wife is more involved with the child raising and the husband's more devoted to work. Okay? So make sure you're devoting yourself to your wife, husbands. Now let's move to the husbands. Four needs of a husband. Number one, it's not sex, it's honor. Honor. This means the following. Will I allow myself, will I allow my husband to fail without throwing his mistakes in his face? Number two, will I honor him where I want to see him, not where he is already? What that means is you may have a deadbeat husband. Don't honor him as a deadbeat husband. Honor him as an elder in the church, a spiritual leader in the family. You honor him as a man of integrity, even if he is not there yet. Honor him with that level. Don't honor him as a peasant. Honor him as a king. Number two. Uh, number two. Honor him. Okay, cover his faults. Cover his faults. Reflect and affirm his strengths not as weaknesses. Men live and die for affirmation. Did you see that, honey? You, you want to see a kid? Put a husband in front of his wife on the basketball court. And he could be the worst player, but he, and he, he thinks he looks like Michael Jordan because his wife's there. They want affirmation. Do you see what I did? I got a promotion. Affirm that. Number two, sex. This is important, women. Understand that the need for men in the sexual arena is not just far greater, it, it, it's huge. You reject a man sexually, you reject the man. I can't say it in any clearer way. You want to create issues? I, I have a, a friend of mine here in the church that says to, uh, to me, it is far easier to go through the day with a smile on my face because of what took place at home to get through the sexual temptations than it is to go with a cold uh, look from the front door. Number three, in regards to that, sex. Number three, kindred fellowship. Kindred fellowship. Let's do things together. Let's engage in activities together. Let's, it, men want friendships, but we're very careful on who we have as friends. Number four, domestic support. The idea of these last two is working together at life in a winsome way that is free from the accusation of failure. Can you just accept me for who I am? See, the wife says, can you accept my body? I see all the other women on the, cat, on the magazines and, and all the models and everything. Can you accept me, husband? The husband is saying, hey, I, I, I'm not uh, Donald Trump. I'm not uh, Bill Gates. I'm not all these great things, uh, these athletes that I want to be. Can you accept me for that? Both of us are wanting acceptance, but for very differing reasons. And so we need to make sure we're servicing our spouse in the needs that they have. Now, here's the one thing we need to make sure of, and that is don't serve out of the areas you think your spouse needs. There's a lot of husbands say, my wife needs a little sex, and they're completely wrong, okay? Meet their needs, not your own. Second, it involves the sexual. This whole passage is focused on sexual relationships between husbands and wives. There's three reasons why sex is important in the marriage relationship. Number one, procreation, Genesis 128. The two come one, nine months later. Wow, okay, you got it. Procreation, be fruitful and multiply. Number two, protection. Verse two says, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. You want to protect your husband? 
especially those that struggle with sexual um, temptation, which I would say 90, 99.8%, maybe there's 0.2% out there that don't struggle with it. Take care of your husband's needs. Protect him. doesn't mean the husband can have a free-for-all when it comes to the sexual realm in the bedroom, but it does involve satisfying that need. Sex and marriage is to keep from rampant immorality. So we see a couple things. You say, well, Tim, where do you get that? I get it from the Greek. Here's an amazing thing. The word marital duty, which is talking about sexual activity, is found in the present tense. It implies a continual action. Next, it's found in active voice, which means the husband and wife, both partners, are instrumental in doing this endeavor. Finally, it's in an imperative mood, which means it is a command. So what do I get from that? A couple things. Well, before I say that, the final thing that sex is created for, pleasure. It's created for pleasure. Two commands I have as, as a pastor, as an elder in this church, is that your sex life needs to increase in frequency and in fun. Frequency and in fun. You say, Tim, I, man, we, I really, really struggle with that. Then find a way to get over it. Work through your issues. If there need to be some counseling that's done, get the counseling. If your husband's been a jerk husband, then get right with God and start confessing sin to your wife. You can't live like hell and hope for heaven in the bedroom. You can't expect your wife to be open to you when you're looking at garbage on the internet. You can't be hoping that your wife is going to be intimate with you if you're not pouring into her and the needs that she has. So what do you do? You have fun. You say, well, Tim, what does God's will say about this? Here are five things. You want to know what can happen in the bedroom? Number one, pass this test. Does it detract for intimacy and fellowship? If it doesn't, well, it passes the first step. Number two, is it mutually pleasurable or at least mutually agreed upon? Number three, is it safe to do? Number four, can I do it with a clear conscience, knowing that God is not a prude when it comes to sex, but he is the creator of it, so he knows all the different ways it can take place? And number five, is it something that I would want my children to practice in their own marriages one day? If that's the case, ladies, I know many of you probably struggle with this more than, than the men do because women are sexually immodest while men are um, uh, emotional. I'm sorry, men are sexually immodest, women are sexually modest. And so many of our women, they struggle with this. Ask this question. Does God say anything about it? If he doesn't, and it fits the parameters that I've just articulated, then pursue it with all your heart unto your spouse and unto God. My friends, the reason why we have a message like this and we blow through the calendar or the time is the following, and I make no apologies about it. We have marriages that are crumbling because of sexual immorality in this church. And we need to put a stake in the ground and say it will not happen anymore. And there are some things we can do as a church. We encourage uh, purity classes for uh, people that are struggling with sexual addictions. We have Bible studies that continue to build precept upon precept when it comes to God's Word. But there are some things that a pastor can't do. There are things that a church can't do in your marital relationship. And it means you guys better get together, put whatever issues to, to rest once and for all under the forgiveness and the uh, willingness of a forgiving heart under God and start being close to one another. You say, Tim, I just endured a message that went to 1130. Good, it's better than a divorce and the rest of your life falling apart. (laughs) 
Seek help. If you've got problems, you can't talk to a pastor here or someone here, seek help. Seek help quickly. Break glass in, in, in times of emergency. If you can't afford it, you come to the elders. We'll take care of it. And I say that with all honesty. If we got to go into debt to take care of people's marriages, I'd rather have a church in debt than marriages falling apart. We will get you the help that you need. And finally, do all that you have to to make your marriage what God has called it to be. Husbands, that means living differently. Wives, that means living differently. Do all you can to be the spouse that God has called you to be. Let's pray. Father God, we have gone through a marathon of a message. And Lord, I have no idea what I've articulated today, but I pray it has been all of you. So Lord, as we take a couple moments to leave this place, there's awkwardness. Lord, there's, there's discussions that need to be made and, and had. Lord, it's Memorial Day weekend, and this is a message not soon to be forgotten. So Lord, I pray we'll do business with you that we'll get right. Father, that there will be the, that the TV today would be turned off in some houses today and mom and dad would be at the table or in, in the bedroom talking through some things, working through some details in their lives to change the baggage that they've brought. Lord, I understand the hurts and pains that are going on in many marriages in our midst today. But Lord, we know as we articulated to the teenagers and our singles, that greater is he that is in us and in our marriage than anything in the world. So Lord, as we leave this place, as we come back together uh, to involve ourselves in more worship, that we would remember why we worship you, because it is you who has given us all good and perfect things that come from above for our enjoyment and our love and for our uh, turning to you and thanking you for what you've given us. To you be the glory, honor forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.